Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. American saxophonist Timothy Roberts currently serves as Professor of Saxophone and Instrumental Division Chair at Shenandoah Conservatory in Winchester, Virginia. He retired as principal saxophonist and a national tour soloist with the United States Navy Band in Washington, D.C., where he also served as coordinator of the Navy Band's International Saxophone Symposium, which became the largest attended public saxophone event in the world today. As one of the ensemble's premier concert soloists, Tim performed for five U.S. presidents, many foreign dignitaries and patrons throughout 48 states and around the world from 1987 to 2011. He makes frequent appearances with the Dallas Symphony, performing on European festival tours and on numerous recordings for the Dorian, Delos and Hyperion labels. Tim received both his Doctorate of Musical Arts and his Masters of Music degrees from the Catholic University of America and received his Bachelor of Music degree from Northwestern University, where he studied with Fred Hemke. Tim has had numerous pieces composed especially for him and a strong proponent of music education, Tim has published more than 30 articles for the Saxophone Journal. An avid student of music and life, Tim currently makes his home in Winchester, Virginia with his wife and two children. Please welcome my guest today, Timothy Roberts. So Tim, thanks for uh, joining me today in Zagreb and I would love to know how you got started with the saxophone. Oh gosh, uh, started with the saxophone. I, I started with the instrument probably in a very similar way to uh, how uh, uh, other Americans have through the public school music program um, in sixth grade. I was 12 years old and I was looking for a, a band instrument to play in, in public school band, just like most American kids are at that age. And uh, I picked the saxophone because I thought that it looked neat with all the buttons on it and knew nothing about it. My um, my father was a professional musician, and in hindsight, looking back on it, I uh, imagine he cringed when I told him the saxophone because he's an orchestral musician. But uh, um, he always supported me and all, and my brother and my sister and everything we wanted to do. And I remember having the discussion with him that, okay, you're going to play the saxophone. That's great, and just make sure that you're uh, dedicated and disciplined to it. So that's kind of how how I started. Your dad was in an orchestra for 50 years. Yeah, my years, dad was uh, principal bassoon in the Dallas Symphony for 51 years. Wow. Um, I just retired uh, October of, uh, we're, we're recording this in uh, July of 2018. He retired in October of 2016. So it was a very strong lesson for me in loyalty and dedication uh, to what you, I mean, for 51 years in one job, it was, it was a, a pretty strong statement about Loyalty, really. Absolutely. And, yeah. And you've had the opportunity to, to solo with Dallas, right? Uh -huh. with, with your dad playing. With my dad playing. Wow. Many, uh, probably the most enjoyable is called, is, is uh, of course, uh, pictures uh, with the, the old castle and the bassoon handing off to the saxophone in, in, 
in that solo and uh, symphonic dances, of course, the bassoon leading into the saxophone. And um, I've played a, a, a couple concertos with them also uh, over over the, the over the years, and so that's always uh, special when you're when you're. Um, when your dad is part of it also, yeah. Be special for him too, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, now going back to your teachers, I mean, in the band program that you started at, did you have a specialist saxophone teacher? Yeah, always. I, I was very fortunate to, um, uh, 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 the Americans that are listening to this will understand this, um, the importance of public school music when, you, uh, when you're first learning. And I, I was very fortunate to grow up um, in Richardson, Texas, which is an area that has some of the best bands uh, in the state of Texas, um, now also, but certainly when I was when I was growing up. So, uh, at when I was tw pretty much everybody, if you were in band, you also took private lessons. So there was kind of a, a, a an understanding that if you were in band, you would that's something that you would do. So I I started out um, right at the beginning, really, with lessons, learning how to produce a note with a teacher next to me. Um, uh, I do have to give credit to my, that very first teacher, Mike Adamchek, who is still in, in, uh, uh, in Texas. He's a, I, th I think he's still a band director down in the Houston area now. But I, was, I studied with him for six or seven years um, and with Deborah Rickmeyer later in high school, um, both very important to me in, in developing my musicianship at a young age. And going on into what, what really made you do, choose to do further study after high school? Uh, I, uh, after, I was, um, I started, it was probably my junior year in high school, 11th grade, uh, when I realized that, that um, my, my father always said to me, don't major in music unless you can't live without it. And that is still the same advice that I give to my students when, as a teacher at Shenandoah Conservatory now in Virginia, if, if high school kids come to me uh, for a lesson and, and they're, they're looking at Shenandoah and, and, and other schools in consideration of coming to school there, and they sometimes they'll say, I haven't really decided if I'm gonna major in music or not, but I wanted to come visit in case I do. And my first advice to them is don't do it unless you can't live without it because it's you have to have a passion for it. Um, you have to have kind of that ice in your veins type of mentality to, to make it because it's, it's not just a hobby. It has to be, it has to, you have to be fully enveloped in it. And, um, that kind of happened for me, I think, um, in about the 11th grade when I realized if I missed a day of practicing, I wasn't the same the next day that I, I, it's just something I had to do. And that's kind of what made it for me. And so th at that point I, I, um, uh, you know, practicing three or four hours a day as a as a uh, as a sixteen year old, then I knew that it was something that I um, that I needed to do. And, and of course, back then in the early eighties, uh, everybody went to either Michigan or Northwestern or Indiana, um, and I decided that of the three, Northwestern was the best for me. And uh, so I uh, auditioned at all three schools and ended up going to Northwestern. And uh, to this day, Fred Hemke, of course, is. Um, the reason why I am where I am and sound the way that I do and have the, you know, and have the, um, the approach to the, to the instrument that I do is because of those four years during my formative development with, with Fred Imke. How would you describe the differences of the teaching styles that you came across on the way through school and then into university? Um, well, see, my, that first teacher, Mike Adamchek, was, um, 
at, at uh, that was more, you know, we started on fund, we did a lot of fundamental work and, and um, I don't know if I would, how I would address the, the school that he, that, he, that he came from. He studied, um, I think he studied in Brussels, but he wasn't, he, he, uh, when I, when I, when I um, studied with Deborah Rickmeyer, of course she was, she studied from Fred Hemke, so it was kind of a natural evolution. Um, lessons with Deborah Rickmeyer, lessons with Fred Hemke, and then going on to develop my own style. It was all kind of a natural uh, progression. That the um, I th always thought that uh, that that what I wanted, the reason I wanted to study with Hemke is because of in his interpretation of um, of of the repertoire. Um, I just uh, and that is, I think. For me, I mean, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses, and I would, and I'd like to think that one of my strengths now is interpretation, especially of contemporary literature and cadenzas, and um, and being able to, to take a piece and understand where it's coming from, and that is what I think uh, Fred Hemke was able to communicate to me the most, and that's why I wanted to study with him. Yeah. Now your career, I think, has taken quite a different path to many other saxophone players because. Ultimately, you entered the Navy. Mm -hmm. So, could you talk about how that came about? Yeah. So, my path was a little bit different, um, and my path was um, uh, also had a lot to do with my father and the advice that he gave um, to me. I uh, was uh, I graduated from Northwestern as an undergrad uh, in 1987. Um, I don't come from a military family at all. No one in my family has ever been in the military. And uh, if you had told me that in, uh, at the beginning of my senior year that I was going to be in the military, I, I wouldn't have believed you at, at all because I wasn't, didn't see myself doing something like that. Um, I was um, going to Bordeaux to study with Jean-Marie uh, as soon as I graduated. And um, I remember coming home f at Christmas break, my senior year, my father said, you know, you should consider those military bands in DC. You know, the great, the great career opportunities. And I thought, oh, okay, well, um, and it's kind of an interesting story because um, uh, at Northwestern, I um, I thought pretty highly of myself. I mean, I thought I was I was my my mind was in the wrong place, and I thought I was you know I was at Northwestern. I was first year in the wind ensemble there, and and I was and I could play all the etudes and all the concertos, and I just thought that at, um, that things were going great and you know that if if I decided I was going to be in, in do this military band career that I'll just go and audition and get that job and start doing that um so my father gave me that advice at Christmas and went back to school and the Air Force Band in Washington put out an announcement that they had a vacancy uh and the audition was February so me thinking that I was just the uh the, the greatest thing that there ever was I I I, I went took that audition and you know, thought like, yo, I'm, I'm just going to go get that job. And it was the best thing that happened to me really, because I, there were, there were 21 people that auditioned. And, um, at that time, the air force ranked everybody who auditioned in numerical order of how they finished. It's kind of a military way of doing things. And I think I was number 17 or something out of 21. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I realized that I wasn't, um, uh, that I was had a whole lot more work to do than I thought that I did, 
And um, I went back and worked on sight reading and um, being able to play different types of music. I realized that to be a musician, you've, there's a lot more th things than French literature that you need to be able to play. And went back and um, uh, worked on a lot of those things. And then a um, couple months later, saw there was an opening for the Navy Band in Washington. I knew a little bit more about the Navy Band because of Dale Underwood. Uh, of course, had a, had a, he was a, the, the legacy there at the Navy Band for so many years. Um, and I went back to the, the band library at Northwestern and I would lock, got, I got a key to the band library and every night after dinner, I would go in there and just sight read everything that I could find. And especially like, like non-classical music, marches and um, Broadway musicals. And um, I remember one of the, one of the best players uh, I don't know if he, how he finished at the audition, but one of the best players at that Air Force Band audition was a guy from Vegas, a sax player from Vegas. And he just playing all kinds of things around me that I ne had never been exposed to before. So I went back and I worked on all those things, pulling, those, pulling the, the, the saxophone parts out of this library and sight reading and reading through all this music. And it, it, I, I did it probably for three or four months and it really helped. And uh, so the Navy band had their audition and I went back and, uh, took that and did better. Still didn't get the job, but, um, um, uh, finished a lot higher. And, um, but they told me that, that in, if I could wait a few more months, there was probably going to be another opening in the, in the band. And there was, and they called me in the summer and offered me a job. Um, so that's kind of how it started. So I was scheduled to go to Bordeaux and study with Jean-Marie. And I had to um, uh, email, uh, not email at the time, I guess it would probably sent, licked an envelope and put it in the, in the mail, in the mail and mailed a letter to Jean-Marie and explained to him that I, that I couldn't come, you know, that I had gotten a job. So um, I certainly had no intentions of staying in the Navy for 24 years, but things kind of happen, you know, and, and um, you know, when you work hard and you, um, I always tell my students, uh, make people want to work with you and make people want to be around you and work hard. And things always happen for you when, when you take that advice. And that's what I tried to do. And I found myself continuing to stay. And you, have, you do four years in the military. And then after that, you sign up for two-year hitches. And I just kept on, well, I'll do another two. I'll do another two. I'll do another two. And then, and then uh, Dale Underwood retired. And that opened up that opportunity to be a soloist and the principal player. Uh, with the Navy band and uh, things were going well. And it was a great, it is a great way um, to, uh, especially as, a, as, as, as uh, predominantly a classical saxophonist, if you, to use that term, or I don't like saying legit saxophonist, but for someone that doesn't focus primarily on jazz, it is, a, and for, for an American, it's a great way um, to, to, uh, to make a living and, and really to play music that you um, to, to be able to, to, to stay a musician your whole life and to support it. So what's the typical day for the Navy band? Um, well, there's, now there's, okay, so there's the, the four bands in DC are all kind of the same. Those are considered the, the, uh, the, um, the, the more professional um, units. And so those, um, a typical, there's not really a typical week, but if you, if, if for the concert band, um, rehearsals would be nine to 1130, um, three or four days a week. And then you'd probably have, a, you'd have one 
weekend concert somewhere around the uh, the, the Washington D.C. area. And then you'd have a couple afternoons a week. You you would could uh, you could be put on a on a funeral at Arlington Cemetery or a, a, a military arrival at the Pentagon or or playing at the White House or, or a, a ceremony around Washington somewhere. Um, during the summer, during the three months of the summer season, you play three evenings a week usually. Uh, Monday nights on the steps of the Capitol, which is neat. Summer's the busiest time with those military bands, but it's also in some ways the most enjoyable. Mm-hmm because you're playing for all these concerts that growing up you used to see on the news all the time. You know, you, you, everybody, everybody knows the U.S. Capitol and the Pentagon and the Washington Monument. Well, you're playing evening concerts there for hundreds of people every night. Um, so that was kind of neat. And then once a year, usually they go on a national tour, um, which those are, a, 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 they can be difficult because you're, you're playing a concert every night. Um, and the tours, while I was there, tours w- were anywhere from 18 days to my longest. Actually, my first one was the longest one, 56 days. And you're pretty much, you get a, might get a couple days off, but you're pretty much playing a concert every night. And it's usually the same music. Usually there's, there, there'd be an A program and a B program, and they would rotate every other night. But you, you get to know the Donna Diana Overture and Stars and Stripes Forever and uh, you know, in a Stevie Wonder medley, those those kind of things. You know, some of some of the uh, some of the music you um, enjoy playing more than others, or or, you're, or, I, sh- or I should say, uh, some of the music you envision yourself playing more as a young student than some of the other music. But it's all important music that people want to hear when you're out in small towns in the middle of the country. And so they they a lot of the music that the military bands play when they're out on tour is. Um, is not the kind of music that we would hear at the World Saxophone Congress where you and I are at right now. It's more general purpose music for, for, for larger audiences that um, uh, more of kind of small town America or small town Australia went to hear. I, I assume it's probably the same in Australia yeah. also. At the same time though, you had opportunity as soloist to, to perform with the band as soloist. So what sort of occasions would that happen? Well, and so that was really what was uh, really, what's, that's what's really great about those jobs. Um, and, and being principal saxophonist really doesn't have a whole lot to do with being a, a soloist. They kind of two independent positions. Um, uh, but if you have success as a soloist and, and you get good audience reaction and you are prepared and play well, then you're, you can play a solo on every tour. And, and I mean, it was, it was really, if you're out on a 56 day tour and there's two programs, I mean, you're playing 28 concertos. It's the same concerto, but I mean, you're playing, you're playing, um, you know, the, the, the piece that I did a lot was the, uh, there's a, a band arrangement of the, um, uh, of the Demersman um, fantasy, uh, fantasy and original theme. And, um, uh, so that was, uh, you know, we'd play, I'd, I'd play that sometimes 20 times on a tour. And, um, but that was just, it, it was really great uh, to be able to play with 62 other people that are um, just as good, if not better than you are, to be backed up by a, people with, with that kind of playing experience, especially as a, you know, as a young 25-year-old joining that band and you've got people backing you up that, have been doing it a lot longer than you and play a lot better than you do. And you've been given this opportunity 
to play with these people. And, and you've, you yourself have played with a Navy band. You know what it's like to have these, these, I mean, there's really those four bands in DC. There's probably, it's probably safe to say this. There's not a whole lot of concert bands anywhere in the world. They're as good as those four bands. You know, when I did come and play with the Navy band, I had an eight bar rest at the beginning of the concerto and then my entry. And I got up to my entry and I was just standing in front of the band, dumbfounded that it sounded so good and I didn't play. I couldn't believe how good it was. It is, I'd, I'd it is, really, like it is really special, uh, I mean, to, to be able to play with, you know, like, with, with, like I said, 62 people that are, um, that come that have the same training and and come from the same background. They've just been doing it longer than I than I had. And I mean, there's there's nowhere that you can get that kind of experience. And I know that f that even though I've had great teachers and um, uh, during my development process um, and worked hard and always had good instruction and good instruments and all that, probably the greatest single factor in making me the player that I am today is being surrounded by the rest of the musicians in the Navy band for 24 years and knowing you, you can't ever mess up. You can't ever make a mistake and you can't ever have a, a different interpretation than the third trumpet sitting back behind you on your left or whatever, because you know he knows what he's doing and you've got to pay attention. And there, there's really no, nothing greater to develop musicianship than being around that kind of environment. So did the, the saxophone section break out of the band to work together mm -hmm. as well? The, uh, in the, each of the four bands in DC are a little bit different. The Navy, uh, when I was there, I think it's still the same. There's seven saxophones, but there's, it's a four person section in the concert band. And the other three will do more of the ceremonial work that I talked about earlier, playing, playing the funerals or, or playing the arrival ceremonies at the Pentagon. And then the other four would, would do the, the concert band work rehearsals and the concerts, and then we'd switch back and forth. But um, I know that right now there's, we, we always had a uh, Navy band saxophone quartet that would break out and, um, and make recordings and go out and do concerts and all that. That's kind of on top of the regular duties. And I know that there's still, uh, the, the four guys that are there now are still, are still doing that. In fact, they're playing uh, tonight at the World Sax Congress, the, the David Canfield uh, concerto after Dvorak, I think. They're playing with the, with the Croatian Armed Forces band tonight. So they're very active and yeah. very good players. Now, part of the Navy band activities that you were involved in was the symposium. Now, at what point did you start to be involved with the organization? Um, well, my very first year in 1988 in the band, uh, everybody contributes to that effort. It takes just like the World Saxophone Congress here. There's a there's a team of people, um, and I was part I was part of the committee for uh, well uh, until what ninety eight I guess give or take a year nineteen ninety eight when and Dale was there. So Dale was the coordinator of the uh, of the symposium. Dale Underwood coordinated the symposium until nineteen ninety eight, and um, so I took over when Dale left, and. Uh, all it meant really is I was just I was coordinating the the, the committee work and, and I um, when I when I started um, that I I tried to make it more of an international. It was always called I think International Saxophone Symposium, but it never was really international. I didn't think I wanted it to be more international. 
So um, one of the things that I started was always asking, making sure that every year an international artist was invited um, and was featured and did, you know, did a masterclass in, uh, from 1998 forward, every year has had one domestic soloist and one international soloist. And then we also started um, the college saxophone quartet series, which really helped the growth of of the uh, of the of the um, of the event. Um, I always remembered uh, growing up as an undergrad uh, that college quartets don't really have an opportunity to, to unless they do a comp one of the two or three competitions. There's really not an opportunity to go out and perform. Um, especially for your colleagues and your, your other your, your university colleagues around the country. So we just started this, this uh, where we, they, at the time they had to, they mailed tape recordings in with resumes for the group and we would choose, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 uh, quartets. And now I think they're just there. It's opened up to anybody who, uh, who wants to come play really, which is a good way to do it also, I think. The event is the largest gathering of saxophonists in the world, pretty much. Maybe this an occasional thing that gets bigger. The thing that makes the, um, yeah, we always were really careful how we worded saying that. Um, I don't know if it's the largest event of saxophonists. It's the largest uh, saxophone event in the world. And the reason why is um, because of the way that the Navy band markets itself. Um, those Friday and Saturday evening concerts are open to the public and are marketed to the community. And uh, so we have, um, you know, that Friday night concert, a lot of times we'll bring in 1,800 people and not all of them are saxophonists, which I think personally is really important that we, you know, that, that you have 1,800 people there and 200 of them out there might be saxophonists and the other 1,600 are people that want to learn about the saxophone. So that's the, that's kind of the difference maker there is it's Mark, it's, it's the, you know, the Navy band, all Navy band, all military band performances have to be open to the public at all times because they're taxpayer funded. So, um, yeah, I mean, we were, we, the the community is really important to that event. Um, And, you know, we have a community saxophone choir and we invite everybody at any ability of any playing ability to come in and play with this community saxophone choir that, that, uh, that does a Saturday morning rehearsal. And, um, and then they, what we used to do, I'm not sure how they're doing it now, but we used to um, have them play in the lobby before the Saturday evening concert and they'd play a couple pieces, but you know, there was a hundred people there and there'd be little, little kids that were, you know, four feet tall that had just bought their saxophones. And then there'd be, um, uh, the guest artists for the concert tonight, really all abilities and all people across the community. Um, so that was kind of our, um, and still is, I'm, I'm sure it still is for the guys that are there now. Um, the mission of that event is to, to, to promote the saxophone, not for, not to saxophonists, but to people that wanted to n- learn about the saxophone. How difficult was it for you to decide to move on from the Navy? Uh, for me, not too difficult. Um, you are, um, no matter which of the four, there's four bands, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. They all have a band in DC and all of them have a time limit, um, based on your, uh, on your, on what your pay grade is. My time limit was probably going to be 26 years. Uh, and I would have had to leave. And every year people have to leave because it's called time and service, just like a lot of jobs. 
Uh, and I was at, uh, I was an adjunct teacher at George Mason University and at Shenandoah Conservatory in Virginia. And um, I had been at each of those schools for four or five years. And I had 24, I had 20, almost 24 years left. Well, 23 when I was offered the job. Uh, when the dean at Shenandoah decided he wanted to make the saxophone position at Shenandoah full time, and he wanted he wanted me to uh, uh, to, to become full time, and I, I wasn't I didn't think I was ready for it. I didn't think I wanted to do that because I loved being in the Navy band and running the symposium, and um, and it was a it was kind of a it was actually in hindsight it was a very tough decision for me and my family, but uh, in hindsight I. It should not have been that tough. I just wasn't, it happened earlier than I thought it was gonna happen. I wanted, I wanted it to happen two years later so that I could maximize my time, but it didn't and things happen. And um, so I, uh, yeah, I, I decided to, I mean, for, you know, we all know what it's like getting a job as a saxophonist and I was offered a, a full-time job at a place that I loved teaching. And um, so it kind of made sense for us to, to, to move on and, and, um, and move to Winchester. I have to ask too, you must have been away quite a bit traveling with the band. Yeah, and that was a good, that was one of the reasons for being a little bit more eager to leave because when you've got young kids, I mean, 56 days in a row, different motel every night, concert every night, and it was part of the job. Our, we, our family had gotten used to it, uh, but still, the idea of um, not having to do that anymore was attractive. Yeah, when you're, you know, at the time, I guess I would have been, uh, what, 46 years old? 46, something like that. Um, and those tours are great. I actually, I met my wife on one of those tours down in Georgia. Uh, and they are, you know, the opportunity to play a concerto every other night. And um, some of the fondest memories I have in the Navy band were those tours because we've uh, got to see, I've been in every, I've been in all 50 states. I've probably played, um, and I'm not, don't mean to brag to say that, everybody in the band can say this, that we, I've played in every city over 30,000 people in the US. And that's, that's, a little, that's a little unique. Not many people can say that. So did you meet Corinne at, at, an, at a performance? Did she hear you play or something? Yeah, she was an usher at, at, at one of the concerts in Georgia. Yeah. So was she impressed with your playing or were you charming? I don't think she, I don't think she cared much. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she, uh, um, when we go to these small towns, this was in, in Augusta, Georgia. When we go to these small towns, um, we depend on the sponsorship usually of a, I don't know how they're doing it now, but it was usually a local newspaper. And I don't know how many local newspapers are left anymore, but but at the time we would always uh, hook up with the local newspaper for the marketing and the advertising and the program printing and all that. Um, and Corrine's uh, uh, mom was the director of marketing for the Augusta newspaper, and so she uh, had uh, had her daughter and a couple friends um, serve as ushers that night. And so I don't know if she particularly wanted to be at the concert, but yeah, that is how we met. Yeah, yeah. There's probably some other things to, to talk about. It's been fascinating to hear about the, the, your development of the Navy. Perhaps just one last question on that was, how important was the influence of Dale Underwood um, on your work in the band? Dale's a, a, a special friend of mine and, and, and a special mentor too. Um, 
I, like I said earlier, I did audition for the Air Force Band, but the Navy Band, um, I mean, Dale really was a legacy for that whole type of, Dale really kind of set the precedent for that type of a career. And, um, you know, he, everybody knew that, that you know, that Dale was, a, was a, a, a worldwide soloist and also was in the Navy Band and, and, and uh, kind of uh, the, 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 the Navy band was kind of a springboard for Dale to launch the career that he's had and still has really. He's, he is all, he's all over the place. And, um, a lot of the reason why I wanted to be in the Navy band was because of Dale and his, his reputation and, um, and the career that he had. And I still talked to, Dale, you know, I retired, Dale retired in 1997. I retired from the band in 2011. Uh, and to this day, I talk to Dale every week. And we just uh, were, were best friends. And he was a real f kind of a father, a musical father figure to me while I was in the band and just getting, being able to, um, to play next to him. And, uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, uh, you'd be in a, in a musical situation where you wouldn't know what to do. How, what, do you, what do you do with this phrase? Or there's this, um, you know, a, a, a subito tempo change coming up or a, something that you didn't understand why the band was playing it the way they were because that wasn't what was on the on the on on the printed music. So a lot of times I would find myself just following what Dale would do because I was always second alto. Dale, of course, was principal alto, and while he was there, I was second. So I and sometimes I would play tenor, but either way, I was always sitting next to to Dale and listening to what he would do in a, in a certain musical situation. I was always trying to listen to him and do and trying to emulate what he was doing. And I, I really learned a whole lot, like I said, um, about how, how to handle, you know, what do you do if, there, if there's a, a second trombone two rows back that's a little sharp and you're on the same chord that you're playing in. Just trying to follow, because Dale, he, he knew how to handle the situations. And so it was a, it was a very important musical relationship for me, and, and I think Dale enjoyed it too, but, but um, it was very, very important. Could you describe the difference in the way that you practice now as an individual compared to when you were practicing first as a student, but also into the Navy? Um, one of the important things that the Navy taught me was, um, and it took me a couple years to realize this, uh, to be an efficient practicer. And by that, I mean, one of the most important things, I had mentioned the importance of sight reading in that audition process for those military band jobs. In fact, the, if I could just back up a step, those, those military band auditions, sight reading, in some ways is the most important part of the, because it's, it's, it's certainly the most important part of the job. And you'll get to those auditions um, and when I left, when I left in 2011, there were 91 people at the audition and 78 of the 91 had doctorate degrees. Now you get that many good players in there and a lot of those guys are gonna be like, uh, they were at the time we were doing um, a, a sheet of, uh, you had to do a package of excerpts and then one movement from either Ebert or Creston, I think. When you got that many good players, most of those guys can play a, a movement of Ebert pretty well. Um, so what they're listening for is sight reading. And because, you know, you're going to, working in the Navy band, a typical situation might be that you get a phone call at eight o'clock at night 
And there is a military official from, uh, and I'm just uh, making up a country here, uh, from, um, uh, let's say, uh, uh, Benin, a country in Africa. And the military official from Benin, Africa, is arriving the next morning at the White House. And you've got to be there at 8 o'clock to play the guy's national anthem. That's a very typical type of call that you would get. And so what would the process would be, um, a, a country, a, a country like Benin, which might not be as organized as as the military officials would be in the U.S. or in, in Australia, and you would get um, there'd be somebody in the band trying to get a copy of what the Benin national anthem was, and nobody would, you know, it'd be tough to find out if Benin even had a national anthem. Um, but what would happen, especially back then in the '80s, is somebody somewhere would have faxed it in. And the music would, lots. You, you can imagine a fax coming in from an African country in the middle of the night, the night before. I mean, sometimes it was illegible, sometimes it wasn't. Some, you know, and all the band part. So my point is, is that you'd get there in the morning and you'd never have seen the thing before. And some of those African anthems, they've got some technique in them. You know, the Australian anthem, and the American anthem are pretty simple, and you could just sit there and sight read it. But some of these. Some of these African anthems are kind of overtures. And so it'd come in on the fax machine and you wouldn't, you'd look at it and, and a lot of times you couldn't read what it was. And you had, to, you had to have a knowledge in your head of music theory and form and analysis kind of to kind of decipher what it might be or what was, it was supposed to be. So the, the point is, is that a very large part of the job is um, to answer your question about practicing, is being able to have eight hours on a, to be given a piece of music and you have to, uh, um, and you have to know it and not make mistakes in eight hours. So I, uh, uh, have, I, I um, got to be, I'd, I'd like to think that I have gotten really efficient at practicing and, and learning and being able to, to, um, uh, to, to learn a new piece of music in a, in a pretty short amount of time because it was required of me for so long. Um, I also remember there was one time when uh, Fred Hemke, my teacher, uh, was going to be the, um, uh, the the guest soloist for this for the sax symposium. That was the unfortunate weekend that he, when he cut his cut his finger. I don't know if you remember that. That was when he uh, he lost the tip of his finger was uh, that that weekend. And so um, we always used to have a rehearsal soloist for the guests that would come in, and I was the rehearsal soloist for Hemke on the I think he was doing the Doll Concerto. And, um, you know, I, we found out about what happened to his hand and I had a, like a day's notice and I was the soloist on the doll concerto. So you just, you get in those situations that, that I think a lot of us have been in where you, um, you're put on the spot and you've got to um, come up with a way to, to still sound as good and make your audience not know that you've only had 24 hours. I know mean, we've all kind of studied doll and know it, but you still have to, get it going again, you know, in, in, in a day and, um, being in those kind of situations or, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be out on tour and, um, remember we were on tour when Princess Diana unfortunately passed away. And so we made some pretty sudden substitutions in the programming for that night. And that was, it happens once every tour, there'd be some sort of, that was a pretty major one, but, um, you know, there would, uh, 
you'd, you'd get to you'd get to the hall that night and you realize that the that the that the conductor decided he wanted to do a different overture. And a lot of people, I think, would be like, "Well, I'm not gonna, I can't do that. We haven't, I haven't had time to practice it. It doesn't work that way in the military. You, you find a way to sound good on it in in 15 minutes." So I think my my that's a long answer to your question. Um, uh, practicing efficiency, I think I really uh, uh, my efficiency greatly improved just because I needed to. That was a requirement of that job for so long. You must carry that with you. I tr I, I I think it's carried through. Yeah, I mean this the, this weekend I'm playing with a um, with the with the Spanish American Quartet. We're playing a music of uh, we're playing um, the the um, uh, the Elliot Carter. Um, uh, kind of, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, uh, canonic, uh, we're playing that and we've got two brand new pieces that are one, one American and one Spanish that are based on the Carter piece and we haven't had much time on it. And that's, you know, that's, it's still, uh, uh it's, that's just how things work sometimes. Have you got any suggestions that have helped you to keep healthy for your playing? And also that will let you play for a long time into the future. Well, I think I think uh, it. it um, yeah, you have to keep your body in good shape. You have to, uh, as as we get older. You know, I, I'm 53 now, and I have to I have to um, treat my body differently than I than I was. You know, 20 years I could I could do a lot more than I, that I or a lot less. I, I probably should say a lot less. Um, you, you know, I I. I uh, um, yeah, good diet, especially in the week leading up to a concert. I think uh, keep you know keeping um, keeping healthy and running. I run a lot, and I think that's important. How would you describe your your typical day as a teacher? Uh, well, let's see. I um, so yeah, I'm professor of saxophone at Shenandoah Conservatory, um, and I'm also the the instrumental division chair there now. That just started last year, so I'm now into a little bit more of an administrative role, um, which I enjoy as long as it doesn't interfere with the teaching, because I'm a teacher first, as we all are. And um, my my day, um, I start teaching at nine and and um, I teach till a uh, typical day, teach till two or three, maybe from nine until two or nine until three. And then um, I usually have a couple hours of administrative work before I before I um, before I go home. And then the kid, if the students have a concert on the weekend, um, I always come come in for student concerts on the weekend or, or or in the evenings. And then, of course, just like all of us, I try to keep as active uh, traveling and touring for my own playing. And does that fit into the university schedule? Do they allow for the touring and the professional? Well, yeah, we. I'm really fortunate with that because our our our, our dean is a as a performer himself, and he. Uh, the most important criteria for promotion in his in his um, in his eyes is being active, and he wants uh, he he would be disappointed if there weren't at least one time a semester that we weren't out of the country doing something. Was this the dean who encouraged you to come to Australia? For a uh, he was. In fact, he is Australian originally. Go. Yeah, and, and he was ecstatic about you inviting me to uh, <laughs> to your Australian saxophone. Retreat, yeah. And the, the interesting thing of that, of course, is when you visit somewhere, then you get to encounter students from the country you visit, and you, you never know, but in the end, students end up coming back to the States and, and, and sharing some time with you. 
and your 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 fantastic student Justin Keneally, I would we he came and enriched all of our lives for one semester. Justin, uh, he what he he won the the concerto competition at Melbourne Uni or something. Right. That was the prize, yeah. if I understand. Yeah. The prize was a, a, a semester abroad, uh, and and yeah, so he he came to Shenandoah because you and I met. I mean, that was the original reason, That's really, because right. you and I met at the Navy Symposium and became friends, and and then so I came to Melbourne and met. And then worked with Justin, and Justin must have liked his lesson or something, because Shenandoah is one of the places that he chose. And, and we are, um, because we are a small private school, we can make things happen very personally and very quickly, uh, which I think he liked also. We got him approved and in the door pretty quick, I think, yeah. Now, you've had the opportunity to premiere a number of new works. How important has it been for you to work with composers in developing new repertoire? Well, I, th I think it, uh, to everybody that's of utmost importance. I think it was, um, it happened a little easier for me, I think, because uh, of the, the position in the Navy band and, and as coordinator of the, of that, uh, of the, of the saxophone symposium, um, there were a lot of composers that were eager to, to uh, have a piece featured on that, at that event. So actually, I, we 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 all kind of all the saxophones in the band got. We did get a lot of phone calls and, and mailings from composers that, hey, can we play? How about you play my piece? How about you play my? So that was um, um, that was important in getting a lot of those new pieces started. And fortunately, um, the, uh, the relationships continue and after that, and, and um, continue developing into other relationships and other pieces by the same composers. and The pieces that you've commissioned or helped to develop, do you continue to play those pieces or do you tend to uh, pick new pieces for your programming? Um, I can, uh, some well, just, just like uh, every, every new piece, some of them you play again. Um, I, I, while I was in the Navy band, I tried to choose pieces for the saxophone symposium that were relative and were not just because that they were new pieces written by by um, well-known composers, but also because they were pieces that are um, um, that are good that will get second performances, and that that's actually kind of a a personal thing of mine, especially um, at World Saxophone Congresses. Actually, I think that's all another topic. Yep. But a lot of the music um, is never played a second time. The majority of it, I'd say, for sure. You know, and, and, and an event like this, that's 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 okay. We're here to um, express ideas and and, um, uh, and and learn new music and get people to hear our new music, and that's really really important. But I think sometimes we lose sense of um, uh, of bringing in good new music, not just new music. And so that was always very very important to me with the Navy Symposium, and I think we ha we always had a pretty good track record of that. Um, bringing in pieces that I, I, I'd like to think that every piece that we've premiered at the Navy Symposium has, has, uh, has, has blossomed and has become something. And your piece, certainly even in, in, in with Matthew Orlovich, um, uh, the, the, flying the, colors. Yeah, flying colors and, and, um, um, and crazy logic, of course that's with piano, but, yeah. but, we do have, I mean, the, the, the fact is we do have a very good track record for the Navy Symposium. The music that is, that we, when people put in a, a, a proposal to play a new piece, 
with us. We do care carefully screen it for viability and for accessibility for all kinds of audiences, including saxophone audiences. But um, uh, that uh, you know, it, it's important for us to be able to say, "Hey, this piece was premiered at the at the the Navy Symposium." So, and I think I think that benefited composers also because I think the reputation kind of got out that, "Hey, if your piece gets on the Navy Symposium, it's going to stick." And that was important to us. Well, it's been pre-filtered in a way because you've selected. Yeah, see, we, we filter differently than the World Sax Congress would filter, and we—it's important to us. And I—I th I think it's a—I thought it was a, I thought it was a good way of, you know. Yeah. Now I've got some rapid-fire questions for you. Okay. So feel free to give a, a short answer. Okay. Uh, or not. Okay. Is there something that you believe that other people disagree with? I th well, a lot of what we just finished talking about. I mm. think there's a there is a there are a lot of people um, uh, that think it's always important to to. to uh, I remember um, going to school at Northwestern with saxophone majors that would only play music that was unpublished. Now, in in in, I think that's a good example to use because in theory that's a great idea, isn't it? I mean that's. When, when um, I mean, you're a publisher, but but I mean, I mean, the the thinking on that is that um, you're always creating new new feelings and new work, and and and. But in reality, that doesn't work. The music's got to be approachable, and sometimes I think saxophonists, because we do play a, a newer instrument, I think we kind of get in our saxophone heads sometimes, and you know, in in the. the, the, the the evidence of that, again, like we talked about earlier, is that 90% of this, the music this week won't be played again. And I think that's, I, I think people would dis, would probably, there, a good number of people would disagree with, with me on that, that, that I think, but I do think we need to be selective to play music that, that our audiences want to hear and not what we want to play. We tend to play music that um, uh, makes us think academically and, um, challenges our musicianship from within, but what's coming out of the instrument to the audience that's listening to it is that they don't want to hear it again. And if we don't have audiences to support us, then we don't play music anymore. And I know there's people that probably disagree with that. Also, if we don't have the general audience, we have saxophone players in the audience. And that doesn't help us. No, we have to have more than that. Yeah, we have to have... We have to have the the old ladies and the young kids, and the, the people that uh, yeah. You've got to have you've got to have diverse general audiences, or 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 things die. Yeah. What are some of the changes you've seen in the saxophone world, and what are some of the things that have stayed the same? Nowadays, there are so many good young players, uh, great young players. Uh, the, 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 a lot, lot these recently uh, the, these recent DMAs. I mean, there are, you know, it just, I, I, I told you earlier when, when I auditioned for the Navy band in 1987, there were 21 people. When I auditioned, or when I left in 2011, there were 91 and 78 of them had doctorate degrees. And most of those guys could play really, really well. I think that's the biggest change. And you look at the, like at the World Con, last night at that concert, um, the concert that, um, this is with the, uh, the Zagreb Philharmonic, I think was the orchestra. Large auditorium. I, I don't know what, do you, two, were you? 2,000, yeah. yeah probably 2,000 seats, yeah. pretty much full. And the hall was 
three miles from the conference with no transportation. So the point is, is that it was full and that many people came and supported the concert where at a World Congress 20 years ago, there might've been a couple hundred people there, right? I mean, you and I met at the Bangkok conference, which was, yeah, 2009. Um, now that was a little harder to get to, I think, but certainly there were no concerts that had 2000 people there. And that's been, there's just so many great young players out there. And there's a, there's a real hunger for learning the instrument and learning the music of the instrument that wasn't there 20 years ago. Is it a recent project that you've been working on that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, so my recent, as uh, soon as I got out of the Navy band and, um, um, and we went to teach at Shenandoah, I released a CD project. Uh, this is, now this is seven years ago called Zenadoa, which is the Native American name for Shenandoah. And I kind of made it my, um, some of my f favorite and most successful pieces that we did that I, that I had done either with the Navy band or while I was in the Navy band and, and Matthew's crazy logic is on there and the, and the, uh, the, the, the Mackie saxophone concerto, which, um, I've done a lot both in the, while in the Navy band and, and after the Navy. Um, so that was kind of like my project to, um, to, uh, some of the, some of the favorites. And then just two years ago, I did a, um, uh, a, a, a CD of trio music for mixed saxophone and mixed trio, um, that I released two years ago. Um, uh, that's called the trio collection. And there's a, there's a, uh, you're speaking about relationships with commissions and composers. Um, John Hines wrote a saxophone concerto with wind ensemble, which is really, really good that I would love to do at a Congress at some point, And no one really knows about the piece, but I asked him to write a trio for, uh, for saxophone, clarinet, and piano. And he did because of the concerto that he wrote for a Navy symposium. We actually uh, premiered it at uh, the last Congress in Strasbourg. And so I recorded it on that CD. And then there's a, um, um, a lot of your listeners will know the music of David Canfield, David DeBoer Canfield, who is, uh, he, he's written a lot of saxophone music and he wrote the, uh, not for me, but we put it on my CD, the, the trio after Brahms, you know, he's done all his after pieces. And so that was with saxophone, violin and piano. Um, and then we've got a French trio for with, with, uh, flute saxophone. Anyway, so that's the trio collection. Mm. Um, Last year, I, I uh, or this year actually, uh, released with uh, also with David DeBoer Canfield. He he did a CD of his music and he wrote a um, a sonata after Poulenc for Claude Delong, and we recorded that for his CD. And so probably this next year I'll do another re recording of some some uh, favorite pieces of mixed genres. Also, yeah. where can we find out more about you? Where we, where can we get your CDs? What's your preferred uh, communication. Uh, I'm using Facebook more than anything right now. I think mm -hmm. um, the um, my website is um, timothy-roberts.com. There's a uh, so yeah. I, I I try to keep that updated. Certainly, I'm, I'm I'm probably a little bit more active with Facebook and 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 the both CDs are on iTunes and and uh, my schedule is on the website. And finally, you've made such a big contribution to the world of saxophone, and it continues to this day. What do you see for yourself over the next 10, 20 years? Oh uh, gosh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with things. I mean, I, 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 
I would, uh, I'd love my job. I love, um, I, you know, everybody, everybody loves their job, but I mean, I, 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 the way I look at things right now is I'm, I'm doing what I love. I teach the instrument that I love playing. I've got great students. I'm in the, probably the most beautiful part of the United States in the mountain, in the, in the Shenandoah Valley, in the mountains. And I've got access to Washington DC an hour and a half away. If I want to go in, go see a baseball game or, or, or go have a nice dinner that's close by. Um, I've got a, 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 a great support structure at my school with the leadership at my school for um, where we're um, performing in international travel and um, it's, it's not only is it allowed, but it's supported and it's, there are creative ways available to, to keep that sustained. My, Right now, my whole studio at Shenandoah, every single member of the studio is on this trip. We're in Zagreb right now for the World Saxophone Congress, and my whole studio is here uh, because Shenandoah uh, has created a program called Global Experiential Learning, where the kids, the, the course is the World Saxophone Congress, the tuition is the travel expenses, and um, they come home and they have a short little project, a short little reflection project on what they've learned and listened to here, and it counts as, as credit towards their curriculum. So it's, they, they, um, they're very innovative at Shenandoah in coming up with ways to um, support faculty and students doing professional activities. And that's really kind of what it's all about, I think. And as long as that, I'm, I'm very happy just doing what I'm doing now and, and, and playing when I can. And Sounds wonderful. Tim? Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Barry. And yeah. of course, I wish you the best for your performances. Thank you very much. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs' show.